listening to season one, episode four of the podcast, where I, Jared Dubin, and my co-host, Jordan White, talk to interesting people about subjects they're interested in that are not their day jobs. On this episode, which we recorded in November 2017, we talked to culture writer for the New York Times, Sopan Deb, about a whole bunch of topics. Jordan, we talked to him about stand-up comedy. We talked to him about the Boston Celtics. Ugh. And we talked to him about the idea of, quote-unquote, stick to sports, which, uh, you know, is annoying. Yeah, my favorite part of this podcast was talking to him about stand-up comedy, uh, just as someone who's done improv um, I got up on stage and tried to tell jokes um, and how not scary, but just like interesting, interesting and like kind of honestly revelatory of an experience that is. It was cool to hear it from his perspective. Uh, and, you know, also the stick to sports chat, which uh, I feel like is something that all sports writers have outside of, you know, like Twitter, aside from like those back and forth with the people who tell them to stick to sports. So uh, I think it was really interesting to kind of dive into the pathology behind that. Yeah, my favorite part was the the stand-up conversation that we had as well, especially because, you know, I know it's something that he does not just here in New York, but he did while he was on the road covering the 2016 election. He did it in a bunch of different cities, and I, th- I thought, you know, seeing him talk about that on Twitter, uh, it was super fascinating, and... I was very excited to ask him, but I actually went off the script of what we were going to talk about for the episode just just to talk to him about that just because I thought it was interesting. And uh, it wound up being exactly as interesting as I thought, and we had a lot of fun talking about it. And uh, you know, rather than yapping your ear off about how much fun we had, we're going to let you have fun listening. This is uh, Season 1, Episode 4 of That's Not My Job, talking to Sopan Deb about a whole lot of stuff. Jordan, we have Sopan with us now. We're going to talk basketball, which is, you know, a huge change for the two of us. <laughs> and, and we're also going to talk about, you know, why people are okay with him talking basketball and why they probably wouldn't be okay with this podcast being about politics. Sopan, how are you? Hey, man. Thanks for having me on. Really appreciate it. It's no problem. Actually, you know what? We're not going to talk about basketball first, because I saw earlier, you said on Twitter, you are doing stand-up tonight when we're recording this. Yes. I think you did some stand-up like on the road while you were covering the campaign. Is that true? I was, yeah. I've been doing stand-up for, I want to say about four years now. Uh, I did improv before that. Um, but yeah, we had we, we would occasionally, very rarely, have free nights on the campaign trail. And so I would just drag the press corps, or they would drag me to a comedy club, like, you know, Des Moines, Burlington, and we just I just go do a set for them. And, you know, it was a lot of fun because, oh, you know, comedy clubs outside of New York City are much um, different, so to speak. Um, it's easier to get stage time. It's it's. it's it's a lot more fun. It's easier to get laughs, actually. And so, uh, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I am doing a show tonight. And then, um, but, uh, but yeah, I, I used to do some during the campaign. And, you know, just it was nice to, like, take a load off every now and then when, when we'd be in a, you know, random, random town. And, you know, when you're working 20 hours a day and you're working every single day, many hours of the day, you, you know, you kind of need to blow off steam every now and then. And so comedy is a good way to do that. Did anybody else, um, you know, the reporters that were like trailing whichever candidate, I mean, you were with Trump, I think, almost the entire time. Yes, that's correct. Um, did any of the other reporters have side gigs like that that they were working on? Not that I know of. I mean, Katie Turr was writing her book the whole time. Um, 
but no, outside of no, not really. Uh, I, I'm kind of the uh, the lone wolf in that. You know, here's the thing about covering politics: is that um, covering politics can kind of be an all encompassing job because you're never really unplugged. There's always stuff going on, right? It doesn't really allow. It's not a job that really allows you to have hobbies. And for me, um, that is not something I do well with because I'm also, aside from being a comedian, I also, I'm a musician and, you know, uh, I love, you know, watching basketball and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And so for me, um, that's probably, that was a big reason, at least for now, I'm taking a break from politics because, um, I just, you know, I like, I have these other interests and, you know, doing what I do now allows me to engage that. Yeah, I was going to say, I imagine that having those other interests probably contributed greatly to the fact that you went from covering politics to now covering, I guess you would call it culture. Yeah, it's culture. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it was, I mean, also, I mean, you only get so many opportunities to write for the New York times and you only get, and, and frankly, the other thing about covering politics is that it's exhausting. Even if you're not on the road full time, it's exhausting. You have to be constantly monitoring TV to see who's doing, you know, who's on with Wolf Blitzer. And you have to, there's always news being made. And, you you know, you, whenever you, um, you know, if you have dinner plans, you know, on a Tuesday night, but Congress is in session, you don't have dinner plans that night. You know, um, you know, if, if a random campaign aide is going on Sean Hannity's show, you have to go home and stay home, pass up on that beer you're going to have with a friend or that pickup basketball game, and you have to watch Sean Hannity that night. And that's not, um, you know, that's not an easy existence. <laughs> um, you know, um, you don't get to really have your own life. Um, and that's why I really applaud the people that do this and have done this for decades and decades. Because, uh, you know, they are they are doing very, very hard work. Uh, and, you know, and, and it's kind of not rewarding in some ways because they're just getting, you know, yelled at all the time, whether it's by politicians or editors or, you know, constituents or whoever, because... That's just the nature of covering politics. Yeah, I mean, I, I do want to get to the basketball stuff that we said we were going to talk about, but I, I got to say one thing in response to that, and then one question first. Um, passing up a beer or a basketball game to watch Sean Hannity sounds like the single worst thing that you can possibly have to do. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's. I'd sure rather. Uh, well, I mean, I think most people would rather have the beer or the basketball game. So. Yeah, and um, just quick, I mean, you know, you've been doing it four years. I know we're around the same age. How did you get into it, you know, just post-college? Yeah, um, I had a girlfriend break up with me, and that was... um, and, and and what do most people do when they're like sad and depressed? They try to do comedy. Um, so for me, I, you know, I was like really feeling down. I was working at NBC. I was working for a show called, um, Rock Center with Brian Williams, uh, which, um, if you haven't heard of it, don't worry. Neither did the rest of America because it got canceled after two years. Um, but generally, um, you know, she, I had this girl who, who I'm now very good friends with, uh, you know, we're fine. But we, I was like, God, really feeling down on myself. I was like, well, what should I do? So, um, I'd heard of this thing called improv and I watched a lot of Who's Lines anyway growing up. So I was like, well, why don't I take an improv class? And I loved it. And I kept taking class after class after class. Uh, I kind of became part of this, uh, community, um, I took class at the Magnet Theater in, in, in Midtown. And then, um, after, you know, uh, maybe a year or two of that, uh, I was like, well, why don't I... 
try something, try stand up. Stand up. You have things to say. You, um, you write jokes. Um, why not actually give it a shot? And I did. And there, the first joke I ever told was at this open mic way downtown. And if you don't even know anything about New York open mics, they are generally horrible. The comics will tell you they are horrible because usually it's, it's only other comics in the audience and they're thinking about their own material. And so they're not, they're not laughing at what you have to say. Cause they're just thinking about, they want you to get the hell off the stage so they can get on stage. And then on top of that, some comics just don't want to laugh. Cause they're like, Oh, if I laugh too hard at this guy, I'm not going to get the laughs. And so generally open mics are at least in New York are horrible ways to test out material. And so I went up there and I told my, the first ever joke I told was something like, um, do you, uh, I'd like to say a couple words about race relations. Uh, do you ever have, anyone here ever have sex while watching NASCAR? And the crowd kind of stays silent. And I'm like, well, I guess we can't talk about race relations. It bombed. It like nobody laughed. And I, it was like the most horrifying, the first ever joke I'm ever telling in person. And, and it was horrifying. I was like, oh my God. I'm 0 for 1 already. What a, what a way to lead off your career here. And, um, but then I kept kind of like, kept telling other jokes and kept doing mics and eventually I started doing real shows and it's a real blast. There is nothing like making a paying crowd laugh. There, there really isn't. And I've, so I've kept at it and it really challenges you in different ways than like being a journalist might. Uh, so I've, I've done stand, or no, I've done improv. Um, and at what school? My, uh, it was in Kansas City. It's Kansas City Improv. Oh, got it. Okay, okay. Um, and so I'm wondering for you, what's the worst, like, what feels worse in terms of bomb? Is it an improv bomb or is it, uh, like, when you tell it joke, like, just on stand Oh, man, easily stand up. Because when you're doing improv, you're with other people. You're sharing the experience, right? And also, cra- improv crowds will generally give you more leeway because subconsciously they know that you're coming up with it on the spot. Whereas stand-up comedy is the only form of entertainment where a group of people sit down in front of in front of somebody and say, make me laugh. It's the only form of comedy that's like that. Um, so as a result, um, you know, st- stand-up is very challenging and it's like, and when you bomb on, st- but here's the thing. Um, when you go on stage as a stand-up comic, the most experienced ones, they don't bomb. You know, because what happens is you have to go on stage thinking you're the funniest person in the world. And and if the crowd isn't laughing, that isn't because of your material. That's because the crowd doesn't get it. And that's on them. And so and so you have to deliver it in such a way that the crowd is the crowd. It it doesn't matter generally like how you feel about it. My point is like. Some of this, a comic once told me, um, and I forget who it was. A comic once told me, you're not, um, convincing the crowd to laugh. You're telling them what is funny. And there's a difference between the two. And so bombing, you know, telling a joke that doesn't land in stand up can be particularly excruciating. But I also never look at it like that because I just think my stuff is funny. And if the crowd's not laughing, the crowd's not laughing. But if you have like four or five shows in a row that are like, Eh, oh man, then you kind of like do get in a little bit of a rut, but generally I feel decent about my material. So speaking of telling people that they're wrong, <laughs> um, <laughs> there is something that you say on Twitter quite often, and I have fallen into a rhythm of telling you that you're wrong and why. <laughs> <laughs> you, you often say that the Boston Celtics are the greatest franchise in sports. And right. Um, As you I, know, I'm a journalist that only states facts, so clearly. <laughs> <laughs> and 
I'm from New York, so I correct you. Right, right, right. Uh, by telling you that it's actually the New York Yankees, which is just, you know, an actual fact. Right. Hey, you want to hear something really interesting? Um, is that I actually grew up a huge Yankee fan. Uh, so I grew up in New Jersey. And um, so I was actually more obsessed with baseball as a kid and into college than I ever was with basketball. I loved basketball as a kid, too, but I was a huge Yankee fan growing up. Um, and the reason I got into the NBA is because my brother, who was grew up in Boston, he's the one who kind of got me onto basketball. And then growing up in New Jersey, I kind of became obsessed with the Yankees. And the reason I kind of lost interest in baseball, that has kind of been peaked recently, but uh, I my first ever internship in college was at WFAN, which is the sports radio station in New York. And if you ever want to just like impale yourself with a pen, and I'm not saying that you do, but if you ever want to um, do that, listen to New York Sports Talk Radio for 18 hours a week and you will lose you will lose any interest you have in that sport. You know what I mean? And and so a part of my job at WFAN was to screen calls. So you get calls that were like, hey, uh, this is Mike from uh, Marstown. Uh, Mike, what do you want to talk about? I want to talk about A-Rod. He went seven for eight. Uh, how? What a bum. How, how come he didn't go eight for eight? And you're dealing with those calls for 30 hours a week, and you're just like, I can't take it anymore. And the reason I never lost my love of basketball is because Basketball in 2006, 2007 was very much a third place sport in this country. You know, it's like, so you, we wouldn't get a lot of calls about the Knicks. We wouldn't get a lot of calls about the NBA in general. It was mostly football and mostly baseball. That was it. Those were the calls we're getting. So I was still able to watch basketball and not feel like I was dying on the inside. You know what I mean? So, uh, so that, that so I hope that the Knicks were winning like 13 games a year at the time. Right. But <laughs> keep in mind that, you know, the Mets were horrible. And even when oh, the yeah. Mets were horrible, they're still getting a lot of calls about the Mets. You know, I think, and I, I don't know when Steve Phillips left the Mets. Uh, I want to, I, I don't remember, but like, you're still getting a lot of calls about Steve Phillips and, you know, uh, you know, and even when the Yankees are bad, they're getting a lot of calls about the Yankees. Whereas with the Knicks, when they're bad, even when they're good, they're just, they're just not, they're rarely the talk of the town here. And that's the same case in Boston, by the way. I mean, um, you know, I lived in Boston. I went to school in Boston and I worked at the Boston Globe for a little while in their sports department. And so, um, you know, you, you know, turn on WEEI and it's a lot of Patriots and a lot of Red Sox calls. You rarely ever, you know, it's not a lot of Celtics calls. Yeah, and, um, well, actually, I guess I'll, I'll go here. You know, you grew up in New Jersey, um, I guess like 20 minutes from where I grew up. I mean, that's firmly Knicks territory. I don't know, like none of my friends from growing up are non-Knicks. Actually, I have one friend who's a Nets fan. How did you wind up a Celtics fan in Central Jersey? Yeah, um, I so there's two reasons. First, my, bo- my brother, who's 10 years older than me, he kind of, somehow, I, you know, he... It, it, the year I became a Celtics fan was the ML Carr year. The year that they won, like, I think it was like 15 games. I think Antoine Walker was a rookie. And for some reason, I loved Antoine Walker as a player, as a kid. I have no idea why, because I think it was because, like, here's this 6'9 guy. You know, he's shooting threes. He's grabbing boards. He's throwing behind the back no-look passes. He's, like... Kind of close to Magic Johnson, not not really, but as a kid, well, not I mean, but as like as like a eight year old, you're like, wow, that guy looks kind of similar to the video game Magic Johnson I've seen, and you know, and so I became kind of like really into Antoine Walker and that horrible Celtics team, 
And then, you know, I just, you know, my brother and I would watch games together and, you know, I just, I just started rooting for the Celtics. And then, um, and at the time the Nets were just so, I guess they were, I mean, that would have been, um, Kerry Kittles and Jason Williams, I think, right? That was, that was that era Nets. Um, you know, I just, we didn't watch them in the house. You know, my, you know, my family, my mom and dad were from India. You know, they have no idea what basketball is, let alone follow the nets, you know, and, uh, my brother just, we just watched the Celtics uh, growing up and I just was drawn to Antoine Walker, of course, like, and then as his career kind of went on, I would steadfastly defend him even as he kind of gained weight and became more inefficient and, you know, stopped rebounding and all that stuff. I still, I just was always drawn to him as a player. Did you have a, a player that um, you were similar, similarly like drawn? I don't know, drawn against is right word, but like for your love of Antoine Walker, was there a player that you hated also? Uh, yeah. Well, actually, uh, you know, I've had a couple was of it those. Paul Pierce, I hate him. No, uh, <laughs> it wasn't Paul Pierce. Um, I was one of those guys who was never sold on Rondo. You know, I, I was a guy that was like, oh, man, like, you know, I, there, there's something about him that I could never quite get behind. Um, and I could feel myself right now feel that way about Marcus Smart in a very similar, like, plays hard, but there are these glaring holes in the game that are that just don't seem to be getting any better. And so, you know... Um, but then I also had these players that I would irrationally hold on to that I will, I could be 80 and I'll still think they're going to be stars. And those guys are, uh, Gerald Green. Uh, like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be 80 and sitting on a rocking chair and still thinking that Gerald Green is gonna be an all-star. Um, <laughs> no, sorry. And then there's, uh, Marcus Banks, who was a point guard for us for a while, who, um, had like maybe one or two good years with the Minnesota Timberwolves because he went out in the Ricky Davis deal. And then, um, we had a rookie that washed out of the league after about five years, I think, if that. And his name is Kedrick Brown. And I thought, oh, yeah. I thought Kedrick Brown was going to be not, um, not a superstar, but I thought he was going to be like a Rudy Gay type player. And boy, that was the biggest misfire I think I've ever made. <laughs> and I made a lot of misfires, but that was, even for me, that was a huge misfire. I think that. Scored I was gonna say points in a summer league game. I think that might be his claim to fame. No, 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 no. Actually, he actually in one game in I think it was 2002 with that Celtics team that went to Eastern Conference Finals. I think it was this year, but he had one game where he had 20 points and 10 rebounds. And myself and a whole bunch of Celtic fans, and this is before like analytics were a huge thing. We were like. That's that's who he's gonna be. He's gonna be a big <laughs> look at him. He just scored. He just he's just scored twenty and ten in a real professional game. And then he, I don't think he ever matched that for the rest of his career. You know, I I, I don't have his numbers in front of me. I don't think he ever matched. And then he got. And I remember <laughs> this one was funny. And this is when I uh, began to kind of lose hope. Is that I think he left the Celtics and then he eventually hopped on with the Cavs summer league team. And there was a site. Which I don't think still exists. Uh, Hoops World? Does that, does that site still, still exist? Hoops World? Uh, anyway, there's a guy that's doing an interview with Kedrick Brown, and he's like, uh, Kedrick, uh, you look a little bigger this offseason. Um, you've been working out. Is this all muscle? And he goes, no, no, it's not all muscle. I've been eating a lot of uh, fried chicken, a lot of my... Um, <laughs> and I was like, come on, man! And that's why, uh, that's when I kind of lost hope in, with in Kedrick Brown. I, I got two interesting things here. Like, first of all, I think it's clear you don't like guys that can't shoot, um, you know, between Rondo and Marcus Smart. And then I think it's interesting that as 
a Celtics fan that is not from Boston, the two guys that you were sort of against are the two guys that Celtics fans have sort of caped up for more than almost any other. Like the Marcus Smart hive within Celtics fandom is bigger than it is for like any other player. And when the Celtics were, you know, the, the Ubuntu Celtics, I feel like Rondo had the biggest crew of capers then. Yeah, well, it's so to to add more kind of nuance to that is that it's not that I don't like Marcus Smart. It's more that I don't like him for what he for the money he's going to ask for this offseason. You know, like he's going to ask for Evan Turner money and Evan Turner is not worth Evan Turner money. You know what I mean? And so like he's going to ask for like 20 million, 15, 20 million dollars next year. And this is a guy that I don't even know. You guys can check for me. I don't even think he's shooting about 30% from the field. And then the, in the case of Rondo, I liked Rondo. He was great. You know, he was a solid point guard, you know, on the championship team and obviously had a lot of skill in, you know, in the years after that, he became a top five point guard. But did I think he could be the best player on a championship team? Could you, could you build around him? See, that's where I got off the boat. And that was a big, um, point of contention for, um, for Celtic fans. So there were a good, good deal of Celtic fans who, who both feel with Marcus Smart and Rondo that they are not, they think very highly of themselves, you know? And, um, and if you look at Rondo's career, I think Rondo, who is a wizard, you know, of a ball handler, uh, his not being able to shoot is a huge liability in today's NBA. It's a huge liability. Um, and, and the, and the, I'm trying to think of guys who can't shoot who have made a living in, in today's NBA. I mean, there are a couple, you know, Ricky Rubio has done very well. Um, who else? Um, Giannis. Uh, Giannis, right. But yeah, but if, if you can't shoot, you need to have some sort of physical advantage that is so mind numbing, like Giannis does that, that it can overcome that lack of shooting, you know, and whether it's, you're the quickest guy on the floor, whether you're the, Biggest, strongest guy on the floor, like Dwight Howard, who's having a little bit of resurgence this year in Charlotte. But to me, um, Smart and to a lesser extent, Rondo never really had that. Uh, and so it, you know, it caused, pro- and you can kind of see with Rondo's career, he was just never was able to live up to that 2010, 2011 peak for him. Yeah, I mean, I would say that that's probably true. And look, the, the Knicks fan in the room is going to start getting depressed soon. So, well, I don't know why. This is the most fun I've had watching the Knicks in years. The, oh, this hundred percent true. This team right here. Um, I mean, I, I think they're. You know, I've seen a lot of talk about the Knicks being like this. Well, why are they not giving time to the? Why are they not giving time to the young guys? Giving too much time to the vets, et cetera, et cetera. But to me. Um, I think it's really important to uh, establish some sort of a winning culture, and and the, I, I kind of I kind of give Hornacek a lot of credit for you know at least exposing the Nick fan base to some level of effort and trying hard and <laughs> winning, you know, because it feels it's like definitely with, a new one for us, <laughs> right? And because it, it feels like with Mellow gone, there's like this cloud lifted. And by the way, I like Mellow a lot more than most people do, uh, but it feels like there's like this cloud that's been lifted above the franchise. I, the Knicks also have the player, I think my like new favorite nickname like in the entire league is Frankie Smokes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, like there hasn't there's there hasn't been a better nickname in at least five years. Yeah, I think that's right. Are you just saying that because like I came up with it? <laughs> 
That's really funny. No, I didn't know you came up with it. Oh, uh, yeah. Um, I didn't know if it was either you or Jason, but either way. Yeah, Jason came up with, um, like, because it's, you know, Frank Nilakina, but it, but it, like, he started calling him Frankie Nicotine. <laughs> shortened it to Frankie Smokes because it sounds like an old-timey mobster that sold cigarettes off the back of a truck. <laughs> right. And it's like, oh, did you get the thing from Frankie Smokes? Oh, yeah, Frankie Smokes, I saw him the other day. <laughs> <laughs> it just seems like an old-time New York mobster, and that like definitely would have been the, the cigarette guy's nickname. Like, uh, you know, at the, at the beginning of Goodfellas, when they're selling cigarettes, like, Henry Hill's name could have easily been Frankie Smokes at the time, and nobody would have batted it on. Like, you know, they had Jimmy two times. And uh, they could have had Frankie Smokes as well. But, <laughs> right. Like I was, what I was going to say was, we'll let you rant about how good the current Celtics are for like two minutes, but then we're just going to not talk about that anymore. Yeah. Right. Well, <laughs> uh, I will let I will I will then go on my two minute rant here. Um, uh, it really makes me sad that Hayward got hurt uh, because the Cavalier. Uh, we don't even have to talk about this, how good the Celtics are, as opposed to how the the Cavaliers really remind me of that the big three in their last couple last year or two, because by that last year, you can kind of tell that Ray Allen wasn't happy. Uh, you can kind of tell that, you know, there's this friction between Rondo and Ray. You can kind of tell, uh, you know, KG was kind of injured and, you know, he was losing, he was losing a step. Um, Rondo was trying to pick up the slack and then, you know, the Jeff Green stuff, but just wasn't, it wasn't a fun team to follow per se. Right. And, and, the Cavs have already reached that point, and they're 10 games into the season. Usually you start sensing that about 60 games in. And Dwayne Wade's already giving quotes about how, um, about how, you know, people are just are, aren't that happy around each other, blah, 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 blah. That's really alarming when you are this early in the season. And, and for the Celtics, it seems like they're having a lot of fun. And Kyrie hasn't even played that well. You know what I mean? Like, he hasn't played that much better. Actually, I mean, his numbers, I think, his percentages are kind of all down across the board from his Cavaliers time. It, he's he's playing not that well, and yet the Celtics are still somehow, with only four returning players, somehow able to be, I think it is, 8-2, eight, 9-2 eight now. Uh, I, that's pretty impressive, and speaks to the work of Brad Stevens, as well as the growth of guys like, you know, Jalen Brown and how ready and polished Jason Tatum are. Yeah. It, um, it makes me really like sick inside how much I like Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum. It's like hurting my soul. Yeah. How, Although there, there is a, are. there's an interesting discussion to be had about what Jalen Brown's ceiling is because I saw a couple interesting comparisons for him. I saw Andrew Wiggins, um, uh, Rudy Gay potentially like, I, I don't know what Jalen Brown's ceiling is, but one, one difference with him and like Wiggins and, and is that uh, Jalen Brown is definitely a two way player. Uh, in a way that Wiggins is not currently. And, um, and so, but there's interesting discussion to be had because we just don't know how good Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown can be. Yeah. And look, you, uh, you mentioned the Cavs. I mean, it's, it's so hard to go to three consecutive finals and then come back the next year and keep playing. Like, look, LeBron is not a human person. He's been to seven straight final season in his 15th season and he's shooting like 61% from the field. He makes no sense. But yeah, I think the other guys like Tristan Thompson played 82 games for five straight years and then went to three consecutive finals. And he just looks dead out there right now. Yeah. And you can't sign Dwayne Wade, Jeff Green and Derek Rose and expect your defense to get better, right? It's just not going to happen. That's the first thing. Now, 
I mean, the caveat here is that Isaiah hasn't played yet. Um, that'll, you know, help on some levels. But here's the thing. When Isaiah comes back, that doesn't help the Cavaliers' defense, and that seems to be where their problem is right now. You know, uh, this doesn't... Um, so I, I'm not sure what the answer is for this uh, for this Cavaliers team and LeBron. I mean, the other night you had a worst case scenario against the Hawks, where LeBron played 41 minutes. They had a chance to win in the final second, and they couldn't they couldn't pull it out against the Hawks, who are one and eight entering the game. That's a huge. Um, I think it's a warning sign for the rest of the season. I, w- I want to go back to the ceiling for a little bit. The ceiling is always like really interesting part of like talking about a player's development. Um, because not every player is going to reach their ceiling, but when it comes to Jalen Brown, like for the Celtics to be a championship team or you know compete for it at least, like what percent of does Jalen Brown need to reach? Do you think? What percent of his ceiling does he need to reach? Uh, for the Celtics to be a championship team, it's a great question. Um, I think that depends on what level Kyrie reaches. I think that level, you know, do I think Jalen Brown, I mean, is Jalen Brown the third best player on the Celtics team right now? Probably. Can he be the third best player on a championship team? Uh, An actual championship team, not like a Nets 2002 championship team. Uh, uh, You know, uh, I think he could probably be the third best player. And um, what he doesn't want to do is be Jeff Green, right? Jeff Green for, and I like Jeff Green. He actually has gotten a, a, I think, a weird rap in his NBA career for not being a star, even though he never, like, you know, he never, like, claimed to be a star. He actually was a pretty productive Celtic when he was here. Um, but I think because what... teams keep trading first-round picks for him, and so it makes it seem like he should be better than he is. Yeah, no, that's that's true. That That's, that's, that's admittedly true. But uh, with Jeff Green, you know... He's kind of perpetually been in that like 14 to 18 point a game range, right? Uh, and if, and, and, you know, with like 45% shooting and, and, you know, kind of, um, mediocre defense. And I think Jalen Brown, if he, he at this point is going to end his career, end the season with, you know, what, 17 points a game, maybe if he's like, if he stays at that level for the rest of his career, if he doesn't get better, I think that'll be a little bit of a disappointment for people that are investing in him right now. Yeah. So look, um, you know, we talked about basketball for a while now. We talked about stand-up comedy. We talked, you know, I mentioned Goodfellas. Nobody's going to bat an eye at that. <laughs> uh, you covered politics for a while. You cover culture now. You've seamless transition yeah. into, you know, another area of, you know, the public consciousness. Right. Um, if I suddenly started covering politics tomorrow, it would not be as well received. I think as, as someone who, you know, has gone into both sides of not the, not the conversation, like, you know, both sides are kind of like whatever. Um, right, right. But you, you've been on both sides of, you know, you've covered politics and you've been outside of politics. I mean, what is it that, that makes it so much taboo for anyone not inside that bubble to talk to? Like, why do people think that sports people or people that are in movies solely exist for them to be viewed through that prism? Um... You have to remember, I think, I think you're referring to stuff like the Jameel Hill stuff from recently, right? I think you're referring to Colin Kaepernick. Um, 
you have to remember that it's not actually about staying in your lane. Okay. We're, let's take the case of Jameel Hill, who, you know, said, uh, you know, called Trump a white supremacist on Twitter and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Let's, let's, let's say she came out and said, you know, um, I, I think that, um, I don't know. Let's say she, uh, adopted one of President Trump's positions. I don't know, pick one. Let's say uh, we need extreme vetting or something like that. The conservatives would not come out and say, you know, Jamil Hill needs to stick to sports, right? It's not that they want them to stick to sports or acting or if you, you know, when, when you know, Hollywood celebrities come out, it's that they don't want them talking about positions they disagree with. And there's a difference, right? <laughs> I, mean, I have made this exact point on Twitter several times, you know, it's, so I'm glad it, that you said it and not me. <laughs> it's, never, it's never about, oh, you are not qualified to talk about this because you don't cover politics and you're not a politician. It's, I don't agree with what you have to say. You know, remember, the same people that were going after Jameel Hill, you know, they didn't have a problem with Clint Eastwood you know, at the 2012 Republican National Committee. I mean, Donald Trump himself, you know, he has a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. He's appeared in numerous television and movie shows. After being elected to office, he was literally the executive producer of a primetime show while in office, you know. But no one was saying, you know, on the Republican side that his supporters, are, well, he should stick to, stick to business or stick to television or stick to acting because they agree with what he had to say. You know, and that's that's a very key distinction. And so it's not that they're against them speaking speaking out about things they're passionate about. It's just they they just don't agree with what they have to say, and there's a difference between that. I think there's also something to be said for um, like more and more we're seeing more sports writers like have a voice that is not just here's a game recap. It's talking about socialists. It's talking about everything else that is involved in the sport, and that. I don't know if that was as prevalent, say, 10, 15, 20 years ago. And so now, like, when they're starting to write about the people who are just like, I just want my sports to just be sports, even though that's never been the case, like, they get pissed off about that, too. Yeah, um, that's been an interesting, you're right, that did not exist. Well, okay, there are a couple of things here. Yes, that did not exist, uh, let's say, 5, 10 years ago. But let's also remember this. Five years ago, it was 2012. In 2012, Twitter was not nearly as prevalent as it is now. So as a result, you know, people have more of an opportunity to speak out. You know, uh, they have more, you know, it's easy to send out a tweet that says, oh, um, Nancy Pelosi needs to go or Donald Trump is a horrible president. It's very easy and much more accessible to send that out now. Five, six years ago, it just wasn't as... It just wasn't as common. People weren't using Twitter as much, you know. This was the first real election where Twitter played such a huge role. But we should also keep this in mind, which is that even with Twitter playing such a big role, 80% of the country still does not consider themselves active Twitter users, okay? So we often live in this bubble where we think that Twitter is driving the conversation with people in the country. The vast majority of people don't even have Twitter or, or, or not using it regularly, regularly enough for it to be a factor in their everyday decision-making. So we often find ourselves in this bubble that is not indicative of society at large, if that makes sense. Yeah. That definitely makes sense. I, I will say, though, Twitter is taking a fucking beating on these podcasts. Like, <laughs> in, the, in the Julie DeCaro podcast, it was all like, Twitter makes all of this harassment worse. Twitter has made everything worse. And now it's like, Twitter makes politics worse, too. Like, right. 
Uh, that's, 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 I mean, that's absolutely correct. Like, do I find myself, look, when I was covering the campaign, as you, as, as I'm sure, you know, as, as you guys know, I was using Twitter a lot because it was a, you know, I kind of, it was a useful way for me to get our information about what Trump was saying. Uh, I've dialed back my use a lot since the campaign, um, ended because it was taking a toll on me. Um, and also it's not, I don't cover it as much. And frankly, I just want to have fun because I found myself saying things and getting into fights with people that I had did not feel good about and that were unnecessary. And, and so do I feel Twitter as a whole can be kind of like a dumbing down of society? Maybe, you know, (laughs) there's a, there's a, there's a thought to that. You know what I mean? Um, but, uh, I will say that I, I, I don't feel any worse for taking, for taking a little break from Twitter every now and then, now and then. It's it's not the best place in the world. Um, you know, certainly it makes a lot of people's jobs easier, but you know, that is also the place where most of this, like stick to whatever you do. Um, conversation happens. I mean, but you know, it, it is sort of the opposite, like not that many people, like you never hear stick to politics when, you know, Chris Hayes roots for the Cubs or anything like, you know, and that's a, something he does very vocally and he's right. obviously a very visible political person. I mean, you, you hear it with the president when he's like calling out NFL players. Cause like, doesn't he have 9 million better things to do? But media people, I think get it, you know, from the outside of politics side way more than they do from within it. Like political reporters can say anything they want about other subjects. It doesn't seem to bother people. Yeah. I mean, other subjects outside of politics aren't nearly as divisive, you know, like (laughs) Chris Hayes roots for the Cubs. It doesn't negatively or positively impact somebody's life. You know what I mean? So it's not, you know, uh, now if Chris Hayes was covering the Cubs for, uh, you know, for ESPN and he was constantly rooting for the Cubs, that would be different. Um, if I ever cover, you know, the NBA, you know, and I do it, you know, for like a major, you know, whatever, first of all, I would, you know, that's the moment I would stop being a fan, you know, because I, there's a professional side of me that I would, you know, that would take over, you know what I mean? Um, so, uh, I, it's a little, when you're not talking about politics, it's just not nearly as offensive because it's not. You know, like I, I can say I'm a big Bruce Springsteen fan and, you know, it just means I like music. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, and that's not that doesn't make people's lives worse or better. Um, now, if I, uh, you know, as I said, if I, you know, with like my Celtics, you know, ridiculousness, if I was, you know, if I was covering the Celtics, that would be inappropriate. Um, but if I, you know, but I'm not, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if you guys are still there. Yeah, sorry, I cut out for a quick second. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, I. But again, I I think there I think there is something to be said. Like I agree that like other things aren't as divisive. But I think again, I'll say part of it also goes back to the old adage that like people used to view sports as an escape. And but I think it's but and like I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm saying like. So people used to view it as an escape, but I think it was like it was a privilege of people to yeah, yeah, yeah. escape. Right. And 
now that they feel, now that they can't escape it anymore, it's like there's like a backlash. It's like yeah. Here's the thing. Um, there's this is the what's unique about Trump is that there's never been a president that has this much pop culture crossover as uh, you know in the history of time. It's never happened. Aside from the I stuff can't I mentioned, remember before. the last time I had a day that wasn't taken over by him in some way. Right, but yeah. but he's he's everywhere. So no matter what you're covering now. Whatever field, fashion, whatever, you are covering Trump in some way, shape, or form. Whether it's art, music, comedy, film, uh, television, uh, you name it, you are covering Trump in some way, shape, or form. And part of that stems from Trump's willingness to weigh in on everything. You know, he's weighing in on Hamilton, uh, Meryl Streep, Michael Moore. Uh, the list goes on. He's, he's, you know, he's, he's warring on Twitter with Samuel L. Jackson during the campaign about golf dudes. Okay. But even beyond that, beyond the TV, beyond the, beyond the Hollywood Walk of Fame star, you know, this is a guy that tried to buy the bills in 2014. He's an avid golfer. Uh, you know, in the 80s, he owned a USFL team. You know, he would, he played, he was actually a very good baseball player in high school. You know, so this is a guy that has, so he is everywhere. He has done everything. And even in terms of fashion, you know, he used to attend, like, in the late 80s and 90s, he used to attend, like, glitzy Broadway openings. Um, he used to, um, he had his own line of clothing. Has a lot of clothing, right? Of course. And then, um, you know, he helped Marla Maples get a role in The Follies uh, in the mid-90s, which is a Broadway show. And then he actually, when he was in his 20s, he actually um, very briefly, dis- um, he actually produced a Broadway play. But aside from that, he actually thought about um, going to film school at USC rather than going to Wharton. And so um, it, it was... Um, this is a guy that has had his kind of tentacles in every part of the lives that we live. Think about how much better off we'd be if they just let him buy the bills. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> no, but I, I had some other train of thought and my joke just messed it up for me. <laughs> Man, don't tell jokes, people. Like, only do it if you're at a stand-up or a right. open mic. But, no, I mean, look, it's... Go ahead, Jordan. Uh, so I, well, I, so I have a question since we're, we've been kind of talking about Twitter and Sohan, Sohan you are, you have a lot of, uh, let's say interesting takes. Yeah. Um, and so I'm wondering if you can remember like which of your opinions you've gotten like the most backlash to. Oh, uh, oh man. I gave you some stuff for the boardwalk empire is better than Mad Men. Um, that was a good, no, um, yeah, the one that it was like the first time I ever like really gave like a pop culture opinion, which was um, I gave my top five '90s bands, and I think there was something like, and there was something like. Here's the thing about Twitter is that people people like take kind of unserious things very seriously. Oh, yeah. So I think I listed my '90s band, not top five '90s bands, something like Third Eye Blind, Gin Blossoms, uh, Bare Naked Ladies. Um, the Goo Goo Dolls, and I, I don't remember the other one. And Twitter just went crazy to the point that Katie Turr, who is a dear friend of mine, actually did a segment on MSNBC about this. Um, about, <laughs> about my list of top five 90s bands. And it just became a thing. Um, that was the one that was like, that I, it was just an avalanche of, of, um, of uh, <laughs> mocking me, which you know, I'm, whatever, you know what I mean. Uh, um, that's was fun. It more like people telling you that 
the ones that you did pick were bad or was it like why didn't you pick green day you- all of the above all of it every reason you can think of all of it all of it yeah that'll happen that's basically all uh, all that twitter is yeah. that's twitter in a nutshell right there yeah yelling past people about things that they didn't talk like you know what that happens in sports discussions too like you can go out there and say like wow mike conley is so good at x and people are like well what about tony parker oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's uh, that's exactly right uh it's um, the, the funny thing is, is that there are, you know, there are Celtic fans that are in politics that will come up to me that, you know, if I'm down in DC for something and I'm with, you know, you always run into political operatives and stuff and they'll come up to me and say, so Pan, you are so right. The Celtics are the greatest franchise uh, in sports, but I just won't say that out loud. And I'm like, okay, thank you, sir. Great to meet you too. <laughs> what, what is this about, you know, cause this is something what is it about people that why in politics will they not say things out loud? Is it, do you think it's donors, voters? Like, you know, the guy that came out today and said, uh, you know, my donors said, don't call me anymore. I can't remember which congressman it was from mm-hmm. uh, one of the guys from New York. My, my donor said, don't call me anymore if you don't pass tax reform. But like, they won't come out and say, like, that's one of the things you're supposedly not supposed to say out loud. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, but they also won't say, you know, there's 9 million stories about Republicans ripping the president on background. I mean, if they're willing to do it on background, I mean, I guess, what is the difference between things that you're allowed to say out loud and things you aren't? Um, good question. Um, it's a great question. Uh, the answer is it to each their own, because remember, Trump, Trump, always said things out loud that other others are not willing to. And so um, I think it just different, you know, varies from candidate to candidate. It depends. Things depend on, you know, are you up for reelection? Are you not up for reelection? Are you retiring? Are you not retiring? Are you, you know, what stage of your political career are you at? How entrenched are you in your seat? Um, those are all things that matter. Um, and, but, but the other thing about donors, right? There's a reason they're donating to you. And, you know, so in the case of, you know, a lot of people harp on the NRA and, you know, the NRA donations, you know, uh, to Congress, you know, but there's also like this notion of there are, you know, a lot of these lawmakers agree with their donors. That's why they're getting donations to begin with. Um, yeah. You know, and it's not like I'm giving you this money. So do as I say, it's I'm giving you this money. So you will do what you say you're going to do. You know what I mean? And there's a difference between the two. Um, but yeah, no, there, there, and there is, there's, there's certainly, and I, th- I think there are certain candidates that definitely let themselves this in 2016, where they really tried to put out this very carefully manufactured image. And, you know, Marco Rubio, I think was one of them. Um, y- you know, and, so, and, and I think, uh, I think, um, constituents, I think people love authenticity or perceived authenticity. And that's what Trump kind of drove home in both the primary and the general. Yeah, I would say that the days of manufactured and careful in politics are probably pretty much over at this point. (laughs) (laughs) We just don't know. 2016 drove home literally anything. It was probably that. (laughs) Right. Well, we'll see. We'll see. Yeah, I guess we will see in the future. Um, so, Penn, thank you so much 
for doing this. Um, you guys can find Sopan's work at the New York Times, mostly about Star Trek recaps these days, but but also about you wrote about the Big Sick, which I thought was re- uh, something really good. You know about your experiences, um, you know compared to you know your parents and his parents. Um, that was a really good piece. Thank you so much. Stuff too. Um, I always enjoy reading, and I would imagine people listening to the podcast would too. Thanks again, man. Appreciate it. Thank you, guys. I really appreciate you having me on. Thanks, Sopan.